everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Discovery Church. It's good to see you. Uh, there's an author whose name is Richard Beck, and he's wrote, written a handful of really incredible books. He's a professor of psychology down at Abilene Christian University in Texas. Um, probably what he would tell you that he loves doing more than that is he works with a couple of prison ministries and with some homeless ministries. And uh, last fall, I read this book called Stranger God, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Um, but he tells a couple of stories in here. I wanted to share one of them with, with you that he tells about his wife. And it goes like this. Jenna, my wife, loves to shop at thrift stores. When you buy your clothing at thrift stores, you need to know a good place to get alterations. You can't always find a perfect size at Goodwill. So the woman at Jenna's favorite alteration shop was from Cambodia. After a few visits, Jenna asked for her name. Ruthie, she said. And from that small beginning, a wonderful friendship was born. It seems like a small thing, making the effort to get on a first-name basis with someone, but it is a bridge few of us make the effort to cross, especially across lines of ethnicity or nationality. Ruthie's English is very broken, something that embarrasses her, so she's very quiet. People have gone to Ruthie for years, but few have taken the time to get to know the lady who's hemming their dresses, pinning their hemlines. The backstory of Jana's desire to connect with Ruthie began in the killing fields of Cambodia. From 1975 to 1979, Pol Pot and Khmer Rouge killed between one and a half million and three million people in the Cambodian genocide. Many Cambodian refugees fled to the United States and some made their way to Texas. Jana's father, Pat, was the pastor of a small church in Dallas. One day, Pat's phone rang, asking if his church could help with the influx of Cambodian refugees. Pat and the church said yes, they would sponsor some of the refugees, and so Jenna grew up among the Cambodians, helping to teach English classes, making friends, and going to the church her father helped the Cambodians start. White evangelical Texans welcomed the refugees. I came late to this story. On our wedding day, on Jenna's side of the aisle, I saw a huge Cambodia crowd. They were not among the richest of guests, but they gave the most lavish of gifts. Cambodians are great gift givers. The other day, Jana took our son Aiden to get his pants hemmed. Ruthie gave him a watermelon. Why did she give me a watermelon? Our son asked. Because, said Jana, Ruthie and I are friends. It was no accident that Jana leaned in to learn Ruthie's name. It had started decades before when her father, a Texas pastor, answered the call to help some refugees. Do you know people like this? Maybe people who you've been behind the line in at a grocery store and you've just heard how kind they were to the person who was bagging their groceries. Do you ever go out to coffee with that friend who just goes the extra mile to ask the barista, how are you doing? Like, really? And they really care. Like, they will listen for as long as the answer goes. Maybe you're like my friend Luis, who always stops when he sees folks on the side of the street. He makes sure that he asks their name and he does this both so that they know that they're seen and that their name matters, but he also asks them just so that he can pray for them after he drives by. We may label people like this as kind, but perhaps a better label would be people who are hospitable. 
people who practice the hospitality of the soul, people who lean in and who listen and who invite and intentionally love. As we jump in today, I just want to acknowledge, particularly the book of Acts, where we've been the last several weeks, this can feel burdensome. And I hope that it doesn't add burden to your life. If this is good news, as we share these stories and talk about how these people were following Jesus, it shouldn't feel like a sack of rocks on your back, but instead it should feel like being set free out of a prison cell. We're talking this week about this idea of hospitality, and I just want to acknowledge the reality is that we're maxed out. We're exhausted as people. We have very little margin. Where do we find time to practice hospitality? You might be thinking, I have a mortgage, I have my own work schedule, my kids' sports schedule, my marriage, I'm just trying to keep afloat, not to mention the three books that have been sitting on my dresser for the past three months that I can't get to because I am busy. Being told to practice hospitality means Jesus is telling me to do more good things, clean the house, cook a meal, entertain guests, clean up more stuff. But what if it doesn't have to look that way? What if the hospitality that we learn about in Scripture really does set us free? If it's good news, shouldn't it liberate us and not just be more news? To speak of hospitality, I think we must begin by talking about the thing that keeps hospitality at bay. And I would submit that that is fear. What is it that we're afraid of? Or better, who is it that we're afraid of? Here's some other thoughts that Richard Beck shares in his book. What do you think of smokers or people who shop at Walmart and eat at McDonald's? What do you think about vegans? How about hunters and gun owners? How do you feel about people who homeschool their kids? People who drive SUVs? People who drink alcohol? People who don't drink? What about people with disabilities? Sometimes when we see someone with a disability, we often feel compassion, but we can also feel uncomfortable. If you see a child with cerebral palsy in a wheelchair, you may want to lean in, but you hesitate, thinking you need some special medical or nursing skill to know what to do in an interaction. People with disabilities and parents of children with disabilities find this silly. No special medical skill is needed to say hello or to have a conversation or offer an affectionate touch, yet we hesitate feeling awkward. Ponder all the ways that we're triggered by race, sexual orientation, religion, nationality, minorities, majorities, LGBTQ plus people, Muslims, immigrants, refugees. He goes on to talk about, are you triggered by politics? What about hygiene or appearance? Social skills? What about people who have a criminal background or a personal history that you just find distasteful? What is it that when you engage and encounter in the world, you just find yourself leaning back a little bit? Oftentimes, I think these are because we've stumbled upon a place of fear, a person or a situation that causes us to just wonder, I don't know what to do or I don't like what's here, so I'm just going to lean back a little bit. To speak of hospitality, we must speak of fear. And today, we're in Acts 9, and we're going to pay attention to the characters in this story. We're going to watch how they practice hospitality. It's not simple, 
and it's not easy. It's actually pretty messy, but I think as we go along, we'll also find that it's deeply liberating. And as Beck finishes this chapter of his book, he says this, all I've been trying to impress upon you are all the different ways we are emotionally triggered when we lean away from people and how these triggers are the emotional battleground for hospitality. If we're going to widen the circle of our affections, these are the locations where the battle must be waged because in the face of each trigger, our hearts shrink and pull back. The discipline of hospitality begins with a deep and honest survey of all those places where we emotionally withdraw, followed by the commitment in the face of these triggers to start to lean in. And so today, we're in Acts chapter nine, beginning with a story of sheer terror for at least one of the characters, probably two. Uh, we're gonna start in verse nine, or chapter nine, verse one, and we're just gonna go through the first 20 verses of this chapter today. I want you to imagine the scene as it goes along. And it starts out like this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I just wanna pause here for a second, because I think that this is hilarious. Uh, at this point, Luke is the man who's writing this book called Acts. He and Paul, at this point, would have been really good friends. And so he's writing with his friend right across the room going, hey, uh, Paul, what do you think about this? I'm going to say that like you were a real jerk. Like you were going around murdering all of my best friends. How do you want? And Paul's like, hey, can you just talk about it like a formative time in life? And he goes, yeah, sure. Breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Like, he's right there. Like, that's the, the interaction they may have had as they look back on this time in Saul's life. Now, Paul would have been hysterical, but also with a twinge of reality and maybe some shame. But I don't think that was the case, and we'll get into why. He went to the high priest, Saul, and he asked him for letters for the, to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, these followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. There's two things I would want to point out just in that last little bit. First, Damascus. That to us is just another city, apparently, that's around there, but Damascus was actually a major city, a major trade city. This would be like addressing Los Angeles. And if there was this new up-and-coming religion that was the antithesis of what Paul thought was the truth, if it gets to Los Angeles, this thing could go global real fast. So he wants to go to Damascus to try and nip this in the bud. Second, I don't know if you caught this, but did you notice that it says whether men or women that he might take them prisoners in Jerusalem? I just, I'd love to point out as we see this trajectory in scripture, the role that women play is important. There's such important ingredients, key ingredients in what this community of people is becoming. That's not normal that a first century writer would include that detail. Let's keep reading. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Can you picture this? He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. 
It's about a six-day walk from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he had another three days once he got into the city where he was blind. I'm wondering if I'm him, like, what am I going to do? My life is ruined. I'm also, if I'm Saul, playing this scene over and over in my head. He said, get up and go to the city. And then he said, after that, I would be told what to do. But when? And in silence and in darkness, every moment of every day for these days, Paul is choosing to fast. He doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. These are the actions of a man who's going, I want to hear from God. And all he hears is silence. I want to share some context on Saul because I think it's important to know one very critical detail about his life. Saul is a guy who was raised in a, a city called Tarsus. And Tarsus is, is a uh, um, college town. This is where people would come from all over the world really to study two things, rhetoric and philosophy. Even the universities in Athens and Alexandria, who are particularly famous for rhetoric, would say, you know, that's the destination school. Tarsus is where you want to be. So to be a kid who grew up in a town like this, Saul was a man of argument. Saul was a man who understood we, we like battle and debate our way forward in relationships. If you want to understand something, understand the reasoning and the logic behind it. So to win a guy like Saul over, you need a good argument. But Jesus blinds him. Encounter with Jesus. That's his argument. It's a weird sort of hospitality when you think about it. It's not the kind of hospitality that you have when you invite people in your home. We're talking about the kind of hospitality that Beck was starting to talk about. The kind of hospitality of simply considering someone else, of addressing someone else, of opening yourself up to someone else. Jesus is opening himself up here to Saul, a murderous thug. That's radical. Why is Jesus choosing him? And he actually doesn't hear from Jesus again in this story. Jesus has begun a conversation. You would think that he would want to finish it personally. Why? That's interesting. And it seems that perhaps Jesus wants this idea of hospitality, this I'm paying attention to you, this I'm open to you, I want to be around you, he wants to take this hospitality into a more physical interaction. So let's keep reading. We'll start now in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Just to pause there for a second, don't glaze over that word disciple. Picture Ananias. He's probably a little bit older, but this is a man who's chosen to have a rabbi in his life, a teacher that he follows, and he's chosen Jesus. We've talked about this a lot before here in this room that if you choose to be a disciple of somebody, you, take, you look at every aspect of your life and you say, I want to be just like them. The things they say, the way that they do the things that they do, I'm studying very carefully who they are. This Ananias, he's seeking to become like Jesus. He craves stories about Jesus. He listens intently to them to see what is modeled, and then he seeks to apply it to his life. Can you picture Ananias? And the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, 
you can just picture the tone uh, in, in Ananias' voice. Like he just heard, hey, this guy who actually came to town particularly to arrest you, uh, go find him. Oh, Lord. <laughs> like can, you, can you feel the weight all of a sudden that he feels the fear that crops up in his heart? Because he's just been invited to become open to somebody that he's terrified of. Somebody that he would much rather just lean away from. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So then... Ananias went to the house, and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. Ananias is an interesting character. Last week, we talked about this man named Philip and another man, this Ethiopian eunuch, who'd shared in common this posture of listening and looking to God. It just seems like Ananias is doing that same thing. Now, Ananias wasn't an idiot, He knew that to practice hospitality with the wrong person could leave you dead in a ditch. This guy was on his way to arrest him. And I think it's safe to say, as we continue to lean into this idea of hospitality, to be thoughtful, to have boundaries. Those are important. Those are also not what we're talking about today. And as Beck will say in his book, I think this is one of the most beautiful quotes Hospitality is the exorcism of fear. Now, I think if you have somebody who's wanting to arrest you or kill you, to be open and hospitable to them, that's something that you can do when God says, go do that. That's a risk worth taking because you know God's got your back. In this moment, God's got his back. Go practice hospitality. It's the exorcism of fear. So, the way of Jesus seems to be this kind of hospitality that we choose to open ourselves up to people that we may ordinarily lean away from. There's one moment in this story that's mind-blowing to me. Can you imagine the touch? I don't know if you caught this detail. God specifically told uh, Ananias, don't just go to Paul, put your hand on him. Can you imagine the moment when he does? Both of them would have shuddered. Ananias, he's terrified, but obedient. He's hoping he's not making a terrible mistake. I love that he adds in this note, I'm gonna heal you and give you the Holy Spirit. It's almost like God didn't say that part about the Holy Spirit. It's almost like this insurance policy of like, I'm gonna heal you. By the way, let's be on the same team when this is over. Can we do that? Does that sound good? Sounds great. Paul, can you imagine him? He's ashamed. He's embarrassed the depth of the hate that is now exposed that's been in his heart. 
it's on display for everybody to see. You're such a jerk, man. You were so wrong. Who's going to care about you now? A place where he's been blind, where people have been guiding him around by the hand, trying to help him out. There's a different touch that comes in. Can you picture that moment? Both men shuddering. It's liberating. It's physical. It's welcoming. It's family. Brother Saul, Jesus sent me to you. Brother, it's the first thing that he hears. Oh, it must have been music to his ears with all the things that he had been wrestling with for three days in the darkness, feeling all this shame and guilt. Brother, you've got a home here. And the second thing that happens, Jesus sent me to you. Jesus started this conversation with Saul on the road, but he finishes it through Ananias. It's a physical touch, a physical welcoming into the family. And maybe, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not here today, maybe that's just the one takeaway for you. That you just need to know that Jesus is saying to you today, welcome home, kid. We've been waiting. That's what Saul heard. And that now is going to become the the story that Saul loves to tell over and over and over again. Now, in our context today, often as people, we find the need to defend ourselves, to argue. We identify those that we fear and we build up walls of words, of arguments, and people of faith can be the worst at this. We determine who is different from us and we lean away, or we avoid, or we get uncomfortable. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, Christians can drive you absolutely nuts. But what did Paul need? He didn't need an argument. He needed a healing touch. Jesus didn't blind him so that he could get him to hold still long enough to convince him through rhetoric. He blinded him so that he could show him something, not convince him of something. It's a hospitality of the soul that he's experiencing, first in Jesus, then through Ananias, and then in himself. Wherever there is hate, Love is offered in return. Where there is offense, forgiveness. When there's this tendency to want to turn away or to to avoid, the invitation remains to be open to the other. And not for the sake of an argument or a fight, but to stay open to love and to practice this hospitality. Notice that he wasn't baptized until after he was healed. And God was up to something there. Paul would go on to write these incredibly compelling arguments and other books that he would write in in scripture, but he'd circle back on things like, hey, the top of the list is faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13.8, love never fails. Ephesians 3.15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of him. I love this one from 1 Thessalonians 2. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, not just the argument, not just the facts, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. The highest argument for the rest of Paul's life would always be love, this hospitality, this concept that exercises fear. 
That's how he, a Jewish man, was able to engage the non-Jewish world around him for the rest of his career. This was a carefully placed turning point that would ultimately instruct him in all that he would need to go spend time with temple prostitutes, with pagan worshipers, people who looked different, thought different, who had hate and lust and who had domination and destruction in their hearts and in their culture, and he welcomed them. He was open to them. And he's gonna be welcoming them for the rest of the book of of Acts in our study. So what does all this mean for you and I? Well, I think you can begin this week in the place where Paul began, spending time with Jesus. Consider how you have been an enemy of his and how he continues to lean in towards you despite all of that. And I wanna make no bones about this one. We are exhausted. We are so busy but we need this time. This can't be seen as time equal to all other things that we're doing. This time with Jesus, this is a life source. So if you're like, great, I need a starting point. How do I actually do that? Read Acts 9, 1 through 20. Consider how this Jesus works. Do it like Ananias would have done it, where you're so focused on him going, what did he say? How did he say it? What is he like? And how can I become like this rabbi so that I can act that way towards others? What if hospitality looked less like finding guests to entertain this week, cleaning and cooking, and more like just considering the posture of your heart with folks you're already doing life with? Look for the little windows and the invitations. A hello to someone at the store that you might not ordinarily say hi to. Checking in with people that you already work with when it's just easier to go sit down and get to work. The extra steps for a three-minute conversation with that neighbor when it's easier just to close the garage door and hurry inside. Intentionally engaging the parents in the bleachers at that soccer game. Or that extra question, how are you, to your kid or your spouse, instead of retreating into your own mental space. Hospitality has less to do with an event inside your home and a posture of your soul towards the people around you. Here's another thought. Consider who it is that you want to argue with or defend yourself from. What would it look like for you to engage them with hospitality? Not as an endorsement that you agree with them, simply as an act of solidarity with Jesus, that hospitality is the most important thing. Not only for the person it's directed at, but for your own heart in the process. Uh, Bible scholar Beverly Gaventa points out that Paul is not converted in order to savor the experience, but in order to witness. So with this experience comes a mission. Experiencing the hospitality of Jesus sets us on a mission to become storytellers and story hearers. Once we come to him, we become his voice box and his ears and we have that responsibility and the high privilege of representing him on earth and communicating that message to the world. How? By being people of hospitality. I'm gonna bring out the band, but as you survey your life and continue to consider who's invited in, who do I show kindness to? In these last two chapters in our book of Acts, We've seen some pretty incredible, like earth-shattering things for this particular group of people. This Jesus who keeps showing up here, he seems to be unimpeded 
in these last two chapters by race, by gender, by sexuality, and even by the thought that you hate God. It doesn't bother him. What if you were unimpeded by those things? What if you opened yourself to people like that, whoever they are? It must start with your own experience of God's love through Jesus. You're called to this. You are called to this kind of hospitality, a hospitality that liberates, that addresses your posture, not your to-do list, a hospitality that ultimately invites you to be the God-designed version of yourself. Paul understood it through Ananias. Ananias understood it through Jesus. This is the same Jesus that speaks to you and I today. In a moment, after we sing, we're gonna have an experience of this Jesus' hospitality leaning towards us. We just wanted to take some time now, for those that are able, to stand and to sing, to hold still in the midst of the busyness, and to begin where we're taught to begin by your own encounter with a Jesus who's leaning in towards you, open to you, practicing in hospitality towards you, saying, I want to be with you. As we sing these songs, maybe take some time, whether you close your eyes, whether you're just considering, what is Jesus' posture towards me right now in this moment? And how can I learn from him as a rabbi? For those that are able, let's stand and sing.